Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. As New York's migrant crisis intensifies, Governor Kathy Hochul has been caught in the middle of a political dispute between New York City Mayor Eric Adams and President Biden over how to deal with the influx of an estimated 80,000 asylum seekers to New York City. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Mayor Adams has drawn the ire of the Biden administration over his criticism of how the federal government has handled the migrant crisis. New York City has been overwhelmed with as many as 5,800 asylum seekers coming each week, most bust from states including Texas and Florida. Adams has proposed transferring some migrants to upstate hotels or housing them in school gymnasiums, but those ideas have been met with opposition and controversy. In late April, a frustrated Adams lashed out, saying the national government has turned its back. Instead of standing on the steps of City Hall, we should be standing on the steps of the White House and asking the national government, what are you doing to the city of New York? Adams' words resulted in him being dropped by the Biden campaign advisory board. Adams, the highest-profile African-American mayor in the country, could have been a key surrogate to help Biden win over more voters in the presidential race. Adams later said that his critique is not about politics and that he'd do everything possible to see Biden reelected. Governor Hochul is a close ally of President Biden, and she is just one of two Democrats in New York who is on the president's re-election advisory board. Nevertheless, Hochul presented a unified front with Adams, along with several New York members of Congress, to ask Biden and Congress for more help and to praise Adams' efforts so far. For the way you just stood up to this challenge didn't run away, didn't shirk it, and said, let's figure this out. Hochul, Adams, and some members of Congress, including Jerry Nadler and Dan Goldman, are asking for the Biden administration to waive the six-month waiting period that migrants must follow before they are allowed to work. They say there are plenty of jobs available in New York for them to fill. Hochul was careful not to disparage the president, saying she hopes that he and his aides will listen to their request. And she says she's pleased with the new border admissions process that replaced the pandemic-era regulations known as Title 42. Asylum seekers are now required to first apply for relief and seek sponsorship from their own countries before they can cross the border into the United States. We're grateful that the Biden administration has instituted a new border process. There's some dispute over whether the president could issue an executive order to waive the 100-day waiting period for the migrants or whether it requires an act of Congress. Biden is a Democrat and the U.S. Senate is narrowly controlled by Democrats, but Republicans lead the House. The highest-ranking Republican in New York state government, Senate Minority Leader Robert Ort, says he disagrees with waiving the 100-day waiting period for employment. He says the rule is in place to ensure public safety. The reason it takes so long now is because there's a security and a vetting process that has to happen. You have people who have shown up 
that we don't know what their background is. We don't know where they're from. We don't know their history. The governor, mayor, and New York's congressional representatives don't seem to be making any headway so far on the issue. Hochul, speaking Monday, said Biden hasn't said yes to her request, but he also has not rejected the idea. We're working with the White House. We've not received a flat no. In the meantime, the recently approved state budget includes $1 billion to help New York City take care of its migrants. And the governor says she's eyeing state properties, including unused former prisons and psychiatric centers, as well as temporarily vacant SUNY dorms to house the migrants, whose numbers are expected to grow in the coming weeks. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Well, after four decades, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok announced his retirement this week. Alan and I have worked together for over 30 years, so I can only wish my friend and mentor a healthy and happy retirement. Alan's legacy of creating WAMC Northeast Public Radio and shows just like this will live well beyond all of us, and for that, we thank you. Now to the recently passed state budget, which marked a milestone for education in New York. The Foundation Aid Formula, first created in 2007 and intended to provide a sound basic education for all students, is fully funded for the first time. And that's exactly where I started my conversation with Robert Schneider, Executive Director of the New York State School Boards Association, this week. We are thrilled with what the end result was for public education as far as the New York State budget. I've been with the School Boards Association for 24 years now, and I've never seen funding like this. And this is an important time to have that funding for all of our public uh, school districts in the state and all the children that that are uh, served throughout the state. Uh, You're looking at a $3 billion increase in school aid. Just incredible. Um, We have funding both as far as the foundation aid finally fully funded and also remember we have the federal funds from the pandemic that is part of the full budget for the school districts and it's important to note that this funding is, is, is funding a situation where we really have to start focusing in on public education and supporting our students as far as the uh, learning gap based on the pandemic, uh, other issues, mental health supports, and other inflationary cost drivers that impact the school district budget and spending. So we're thrilled about it. And as you'd stated, the foundation aid formula, um, which is old and needs to be uh, revised and updated, but the fact that that campaign for fiscal equity was uh, won in the early 2000s, being fully funded now is important. And as we move forward, we hope the legislature and the governor uses this year's baseline funding as the starting point so we can see important increases moving forward. Now, of course, the foundation aid does not change how schools are funded, right? We're funded through the property tax system in New York, and that's been criticized over the years when you have, for example, in different communities, you know, Westchester is going to be different than the Bronx, for example, or upstate, you could find a more rural community with less of a tax base or vice versa, depending on where you are in a city. So the equity there is difficult to obtain 
And I wonder, you know, from a New York State School Boards Association perspective, would you rather see the funding come out of the property tax base from the general fund, from a dedicated fund? You know, where do you come down on that? Well, I think it's time that the legislature and the, and the education stakeholders take a look at the foundation aid formula and look to update that. Uh, there's there's data that is very old and stale. And to your point, we really have to determine what equity is throughout the state. What's important, as, as I said earlier, we have this amount in play and we already have a property tax cap in play in this state. So our school business officials, our superintendents and our school boards have to be very diligent when they're focusing on where they're going to spend the money. Um, as far as the how the funds are, are received by the state that's kind of out of our lane. We are the organization that supports our school boards and other education stakeholders that, you know, how do we advocate how the money should be spent. But on the revenue side, it's up to the powers that be in the legislature and the governor. There could be unique ways to fund this in the future. But right now, to your point, the foundation aid formula is the operating aid, if you will, throughout the state. There's a calculation, the foundation aid formula, which we, we just talked about, that distributes money to a variety of different districts throughout the state. And yes, we have to tr maintain equity, but also I think we have to maintain the the baseline for all these districts because school districts um, are important elements, if you will, or organizations in each community. And that was sh that proved out again it, during the school budget votes. 98.5% uh, of the school budgets in the state were approved by the local voters, and the the budget vote is available or open for folks to vote on all day on that Tuesday from a couple of weeks ago. So that kind of ratifies the fact that the communities are in support of their school district budgets and how they're spending them. But we have to keep in mind also with the foundation aid, that's the operating aid, it gives our school districts a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of differences throughout the state. You have districts on Long Island that have different requirements to expend the money versus, as you said, rural schools upstate. So we have to keep an eye on making sure that the local spending is there. They understand their communities the, the best, the business officials, the superintendents, the school board. So we want to make sure whatever changes is that we have that local ability to uh, determine where our, 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 that foundation aid is spent. Well, you mentioned something, noting the school budget votes, which, you know, occurred uh, not so long ago on a Tuesday. And mm -hmm. I just want to note that I, of course, voted for the school budget where I live. But you mentioned they're open all day, and I encountered this two years in a row now, and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you know. You may not know anything about it, so just tell mm -hmm. me if you don't. Sure. But our school, and I won't name it, but our school district opens the polls at 2.30 in the afternoon. And two years right. in a row, I went before because mm -hmm. of my schedule and showed up to locked doors and noticed there were a number of retirees along with me saying, what's going on? Shouldn't they be open all day long, not just for part of the day? Aren't we? Don't we yes, want to get as many knowledge, votes? To my knowledge, they, they are open most of the day. They open up early in the morning and they close at, I believe, 9 o'clock. So that sounds like that could be a one-off situation. I can check into that for you. But for the most part, you know, my school district, I got in before work and, and voted. And previous years, I would go after work and they were open. The polls were open until 9 o'clock. So and when you have people showing up to the polls, that's a good thing, right? I mean, as you said, 98% of these budgets pass. So people showed up and they passed the budgets for their schools. Sure. But 98% is a percentage of how many people who voted at all. So right. what's the turnout 
in school budget elections? Well, the data I have as far as the number of voters throughout the state was 556,876 voters. Now, that turnout was down by 13 percent from last year, but up 7 percent from 2021. We had a pandemic high of one po- just under 1.6 million uh, voters came out in 2020, and that was when the absentee ballots were mailed to all registered voters, and they can mail it in. Now, keep in mind that uh, you know that's a high number that year, and with that high number, we had high 90 percent budget approval in that year also. That's Robert Schneider, executive director of the New York State School Boards Association. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer stopped by Albany Medical Center this week to continue his quest to adjust the Medicare wage index. The New York Democrat says the change would benefit hospitals. More from the Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas. Schumer has written to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, calling on the agency to finalize a recent proposed rule change that would see nearly $200 million flow annually to hospitals across the Capital Region. For years, Capital Region hospitals struggled, and that's the right word, with unfairly low Medicare wage index payments. And so they got less money. Albany area families see the impact every day because our hospitals have to operate on razor-thin budgets. Upstate communities have to figure out how to hire the best doctors and nurses when they're not reimbursed the prevailing rate for what they have to pay them. And so um, it's very important. So now I'm standing here with every major health care provider in the capital region, Albany Med, St. Peter's, Ellis, all of whom have big benefits, um, uh, to say that we in the capital region need this shot in the arm. CMS needs to finalize the rule. As proposed, Schumer says the capital region stands to receive a 43% increase in the Medicare wage payments it receives, the second largest increase in the country under the proposed formula. Schumer broke down the numbers. Columbia Memorial will get $8 million more a year. Albany Medical will get $84 million more a year, $84 million more a year. Uh, Ellis will get $30 million more a year. Samaritan will get $2 million more a year. Saratoga will get $2 million more a year. St. Peter's will get $60 million more a year. Glens Falls will get $3 million more a year. And Sunnyview Rehab will get $263,000. The Medicare wage index rate is used to determine how much money the federal government pays hospitals for labor costs when they treat Medicare patients. Since the 1980s, Schumer says hospitals in the Albany area have received 86% of what the average hospital receives to account for wages. Christopher Jordan is St. Peter's Health Partners' Senior Vice President of Hospital Operations. Quite simply, the way hospitals have been paid by Medicare is broken. The hospital-
hospitals of the capital region and ultimately our communities that we serve suffer from this inequity. For decades, our facilities have been reimbursed well below average rates, which has shortchanged our hospitals and the patients that we serve. For both Ellis and St. Peter's Health Partners, the majority of our patients are on government insurance programs. Appropriately addressing the payment deficits that exist across our region would be a tremendous help in closing this gap. Albany Med President and CEO Dr. Dennis McKenna. Should the Medicare weight inject index be adjusted, and we certainly hope it will be, we can move forward with more flexibility and more certainty, continuing to grow our workforce, managing the rising expenses, and providing our communities with the care that they expect and they in fact deserve. CMS will continue to take public comments until June 9th prior to making a decision. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Staff with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency answered questions and provided an update this week as the agency monitors the cleanup of toxic PCBs from the Hudson River. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard has more. In a two-hour Zoom call, the EPA provided information on the cleanup and monitoring work on the Upper Hudson River to date, upcoming sampling efforts in the Lower Hudson, and the pending release of a third five-year review of the Superfund cleanup work by General Electric. GE completed its dredging in the Upper Hudson between Fort Edward and Troy in 2016, and the work was issued a so-called Certificate of Completion for the Remedial Action by EPA in 2019. At the same time, EPA also deferred a determination of the protectiveness of the remedy until more years of fish tissue data is gathered. During Wednesday night's presentation, EPA Hudson River Field Office Director Gary Kluinski outlined steps that will begin in the lower Hudson in June. Kluinski said water column sampling will be done down to the Tappan Zee Bridge. We're going to do that for a year. We're going to focus primarily on PCBs for the water for now. Um, and we're going to kind of get a sense of uh, how different or the same those results are over the course of a year. And then we'll regroup and decide whether we need to change the frequency, sample less, sample more, sample at different locations. Fish and crabs will also be sampled for PCB concentrations. Klawinski explained that 14 species of fish will be collected at stations about 30 miles apart. Blue crabs will be sampled at two locations close to New York Harbor. Klawinski said the EPA's fish sampling is being set up to complement the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation's ongoing fish sampling efforts. We want to kind of stay consistent with what they've done historically so we can compare uh, data that we get that's newer to some of their older data at the same stations. So we set up these primary stations, then we also added stations in between those. Klawinski said the setup will allow EPA the opportunity to collect more data between two station points. Sediment sampling is also being planned. Beginning this year, Klawinski said EPA will begin a study of recently deposited sediment in the Hudson and 12 main tributaries. Additional supplemental sediment sampling and high-resolution sediment core samples will follow in 2024. On the Upper Hudson, Klawinski provided an update on some sites in Hudson Falls that are being addressed. GE has installed a system to collect PCB-contaminated groundwater under the site of the former Hudson Falls plant. But there are two nearby buildings that need to be deconstructed, the former Allen Mill and its downriver powerhouse. 
While the Allen Mill is still scheduled to be taken down, work on the powerhouse began last year and continued into this spring. That powerhouse work has moved along very well. National Grid and GE have been very cooperative and they've worked closely with us and we've been there the whole time while that building's being taken down. Really the goal here is is to not let anything get in the river while the building's getting taken down. So that's that's why we were involved. Klawinski also said a third five-year review of the Hudson River cleanup is being readied for release for public comment. Work on the review began last year. Advocates and environmental groups were also able to ask questions during Wednesday's call. Aaron Mayer, a past president of the Sierra Club and longtime Hudson River advocate, encouraged EPA to take additional steps to protect low-income populations and communities of color, some of whom he said rely on the Hudson for subsistence fishing. Number one is the need to have what I call the culturally sensitive sites where people are actually fishing be added to the sampling sites, number one. Number two, there should be money with regards to the Natural Resources Damages Act for those historic Black communities uh, along the Hudson River, Albany, Beacon, Troy, uh, Ossining, uh, Yonkers, those communities should have a special assessment done with regards to their needs, and that should be factored in. Kluwinski said while EPA has worked with the state health department to warn people against consuming fish from the Hudson through public information campaigns, he acknowledged they're not 100 percent foolproof and that EPA will continue to work closely with DOH. As EPA prepares to coordinate with General Electric to begin its sampling on the lower Hudson this spring, Groups Scenic Hudson and Riverkeeper in a statement said, quote, EPA should issue a clear schedule and commitment to ordering a remedial investigation slash feasibility study of the Lower Hudson, end quote. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The head of an Adirondack nonprofit has been appointed to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's Community Advisory Group. Since 1997, the Adirondack Foundation has worked to identify and funnel philanthropic efforts to address challenges including child care, food insecurity, and housing needs in the Adirondacks. President and CEO Callie Brooks has led the foundation since 2001. Brooks spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley about what the Federal Reserve Bank's advisory group does and why she wants to serve. Our role is really to offer a diverse perspective on the circumstances, economic and financial service needs of the people in our region where we are serving. There's a particular focus on low and moderate income populations. How did you find out about the group and why did you want to get the chance to serve on it? Great question, Pat. The Adirondack Foundation has been aware of the New York Federal Reserve and has actually worked with them over maybe the past 20 years. The New York Federal Reserve Bank uh, works to make the economy stronger and the financial system more stable for, for the region they serve. They have a team of economists and researchers, and they uh, produce data reports at all levels of our economy. So we've been aware of them for, for many years. In fact, it was probably about 12 years ago I brought uh, then-president of the New York Bank up to Plattsburgh to to meet with business leaders and you know give them a tour of the of the region 
Um, we're hoping to do that again in the coming years. But they're just a great resource for data and information. And so I've been aware of them for, for quite some time. Well, how important will it be to have somebody on this advisory committee who can bring the Adirondack, North Country, and rural perspective to the Federal Reserve Bank? So just to, to give you a sense, the, the New York Federal Reserve Bank has a very interesting um, geographic coverage area. They serve all of New York State, northern New Jersey, southwest Connecticut, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So that's an incredibly diverse region. I see my role as really being a voice for rural parts of, of their district, of which there are many. Um, just to give you a snapshot, you know, 72% of our region's population are what we consider asset limited but employed. So they're earning too much to qualify for public assistance, but not really enough to make ends meet. The barriers our neighbors face, you know, compel many, especially our young people, to go elsewhere for opportunity. And it's not surprising to your listeners that by 2030, 60% of the residents of this region will be over the age of 60. That's the kind of information we need to be sharing with our economic policy decision makers, and they need to be tracking those kinds of trends as they think about economic policy. So how does that policy then move forward? I mean, if you're saying we need to do something about this, you tell the Federal Reserve Bank of New York about it, how does that eventually get to become policy? So again, their um, researchers, how they're thinking about banking and monetary policy needs to be thinking about all people, not just those with, with the most to gain. Um, so that's the perspective we'll be bringing to their decision-making, to their analysis. So they'll be thinking about an economy that really works for everyone. When I took a look at the charter for the advisory group, it says that uh, it can have up to 10 to 15 members. But when I looked, Right now, it looks pretty elite. There's only five members. How strong do you feel your voice is going to be on this community advisory group? So, again, I want to stress it's a community advisory group, so we're really just there to provide advice. <laughs> um, I think they're in a rebuilding phase. Um, the last meeting I was just at, a number of, of members were cycling off, and they're bringing new members on over the next couple of meetings, so we're in kind of a transition period. Um, but, you know, I, I was sitting right next to President John C. Williams during the meeting, so they are listening to us. So I feel, um, I feel that they do deeply care about the region that they are responsible for. How excited are you to be on this group? I'm very excited bringing the information and voices of the people of the, of the Adirondack North Country region you know, down to New York City is an honor and a privilege. And I'm really excited to see um, what I can bring back from the Federal Reserve Bank to this region. Callie Brooks will serve a three-year term on the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's Community Advisory Group. She can be reappointed. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. 
And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Look for program number 2321. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.